Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we study strategy and leadership in the field of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and data science. My name is Felipe Flores. I am a data science executive with almost 20 years of experience in the field, still working as a practitioner, love it, and I also produce this podcast, Data Futurology, hopefully to help you in your understanding of the space and also in your career. Thank you so much for being on the show. I hope that you and your loved ones are staying healthy during this time. Today, we are speaking with Dane Hillard. Dane is the author of a book called Practices of the Python Pro, and he is also the lead web application developer at Ithaca, working on a product called JSTOR. Dane wrote this really interesting book looking at the systems level or an architecture level or systems view of how to write good software, good programs, and something that's really applicable to data science. This is obviously one of the, I guess, more more technical episodes. We try to make it still accessible for everyone. And that's uh, one of the main aims of the podcast is to demystify what's necessary in this space. And Dane, I think with his book, brings in a really important and often overlooked aspect of what we should keep in mind as we develop our code, we go to productionize it, we think about scale, and also as what to we should think of as leaders and managers of people doing that work. I really enjoyed the conversation. Dane is based in the US, so in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I really enjoyed the conversation and I hope you do as well. Here is conversation with Dane Hillard. Hi, this is Felipe Flores. Today I'm speaking with Dane Hillard. Mate, how are you going today? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Good, thanks, mate. How's the lockdown treating you? It's actually not too different from my norm, which is a fortunate position to be in. I work remotely, so I still work remotely. My coworkers don't work remotely, so they're all working remotely now, which puts us all kind of in the same boat, which is good in some ways because uh, everyone gets to experience what it's like, but of course, under the worst possible uh, circumstances. So That's right. And how long have you been working remotely for? About two years, I think, maybe a year and a half or so. I like it how common it is in the U.S. for people to work remotely. I've been speaking to a few people recently, and I hadn't realized before that it was so prevalent and so common, especially as sort of large companies start to take up more geographical areas. The working remotely is quite popular there. In Australia, it's, uh, it's yet to come, and probably this sad event will help us improve that. It's the first time for me working from home. I've been enjoying it so far. Obviously, yes. as you said, the worst circumstances that pushed us here, but trying to make the best out of bad times. So, mate, I wanted to start by asking you a bit about yourself, about your professional background. How did you get to where you are? How did you get started? If you can give us a bit of an origin story. Yeah, sure. So I had a traditional path through software, I suppose. I went to a computer science university program and went to the University of Michigan and did uh, computer engineering, which is kind of a mix of software and hardware. Given that and living in Michigan next to Ford and uh, GM, the big three, the options there were kind of to go into auto manufacturing, which I didn't particularly want to do. So I stuck mostly to software. Since then, you know, I tinker with Arduino or uh, Raspberry Pi on my own time to do hardware things. Um, nice one. But so since then, I've mostly done software. I worked a bit in more backend or algorithm design work uh, right out of school. And it was really interesting, really challenging work. 
But then I found since then also that web development is interesting to me. It's uh, challenging in different ways, for sure. So I've done a lot of sort of Django and Python work in the web development space for the past couple of years. And I'm also doing more front-end programming lately. So Vue and React and all that kind of stuff. So right now I work at Ithaca. And that's a nonprofit in higher education. They do jstore.org, which a lot of people are familiar with in academic research. And uh, right and now, what is, what is that? Sorry. So it's an academic journal archive. Uh, so people can search for scholarly content that they need for their research. Nice. Um, and lately, I've been on a team that's building a design system for JSTOR. And a design system is kind of a if you're more familiar with Python, it's a way of making packages for others to install and use uh, specifically for kind of visual components, form inputs, buttons, all that kind of stuff for kind of a consistent visual style. That's been fun. That's fantastic. So many things I want to ask you about. I'll first ask you about the algorithm design, actually. What was the work that you were doing during that time and what did it look like? So I was doing a bit of research and development for a government contractor at the time. A lot of it was dealing with kind of radar signal and telemetry work. And at the time, a lot of 3D modeling with Kinect, like Microsoft's Xbox Kinect uh, really took off for a while in the 3D modeling space for like homebrewed stuff. So yep. even that stuff was not really too prevalent yet. This was around 2006, 2007. So we were doing a little bit of like 3D mesh generation uh, from video and things like that a little bit of sonar data. So kind of just like various signal inputs and trying to try to build things out of them. So it was pretty interesting. Put a lot of my digital signal processing to work from school. And I haven't done a lot of strictly algorithm design since then, because this was a lot of sort of taking math applications and turning them into real stuff, right? So that was pretty cool. It feels like a different life. <laughs> like, yeah, I was going to say, lifetime. Lifetime, yeah. No, that makes sense. And it's interesting because the degree that I did was also a mix between software and hardware. And I actually ended up, you had to pick sort of a specialization, which you would do like a few more subjects on one of the areas. I ended up picking hardware. And since finishing uni and even the work that I was doing while at college and university, it has always been data. And I remember like when I went to choose the specialization to do, there was a data one and I didn't pick it. Even though I was working in data and I picked hardware and I've never used it. <laughs> but anyway, that's where my um, interest on Raspberry Pis comes from as well. A little bit on the Arduino, I've used them less. What are, what are your thoughts on those boards and what type of things have you been using them on? I mean, I think they're really fun. It's amazing that they've sort of made something so accessible to such a wide group of people that want to sort of hobby tinker on things. And when I was a kid, it was like you would go to Radio Shack and buy components and have to like build a lot of things from scratch. And or, you know, you could build your own computer and all that. But it would take a long time, right? It was like painful yeah. process just to get yeah, to, like a, to step one or like step zero. Yeah, it was like a passion project for a lot of people, right? So the fact that they've been able to cram a lot of that down into such a small footprint and sell it for 10 bucks, 15 bucks uh, is just amazing. So I haven't done too much in the last couple months. One of my most kind of fun projects that I shot for, I didn't quite get there before I dropped it and moved, I think, at the time, but I was trying to build a laser harp. It's like a musical instrument. What? So... 
you uh, so glad I asked. There's these uh, big sort of larger than life versions that they use sometimes at music performances and things. I'm not even yeah. sure if they're real. They might just be for show. But the idea is that it's a harp, but instead of strings, you have laser beams and you, instead of plucking the string, you block the path of the laser to play the note. So my friend and I bought like a, like a 60 pack of laser pointers and tore them all apart and then tried uh, gluing them together on this frame and using photodiodes. Is that the right word? Photo resistors. I don't remember exactly what we're using, but detecting the laser beams and uh, trying to play notes via Arduino. Yes. Would it be one laser pointer per string or two? We did one. And so on the other end is that sort of photo sensor. Um, The reader, yeah. Yeah. And I think there are some that the more advanced ones might even use a single laser source, but sort of emit pulses repeatedly for each string, that kind of thing. So there's a couple different designs that we saw, but it was sort of the easiest one since we didn't have any motors or certainly any motors fast enough for what we needed. We just kind of chose to do one pointer per string. I love it. And how did that project come up? Do any of you guys play? Yeah, I'm a musician myself. I play guitar mostly. I have a piano background, but mostly play guitar now. And I'm not sure my friend's background. He may have also been a guitarist, but it was actually his idea. I think we were in class one day and he was just like, I want to build a laser harp. Are you into that? It was pretty good. I would have said yes too. Yeah. Oh, that sounds great. I'm so glad I asked. Any other types of projects that you've done? Um, even if it's like a couple of years ago, it doesn't have to be super recent. I know that like my most recent one was well, like over a year ago. But um, yeah, how about you? I think the, the most recent thing I did was try to build a just sort of a toy MIDI controller for my keyboard. Uh, yeah. I have an old digital piano, like a Roland upright digital piano, old enough that it still has a floppy disk drive. Amazing. That's what I what I had when I was a kid in piano lessons. But it has a, a MIDI input on it. And I just wanted to see if I could control it programmatically. So I got it to play an arpeggio from an Arduino board, which was cool. I had to sort of like learn the MIDI standard and program the Arduino to... Actually, no, I ended up using Raspberry Pi for that. So I used the serial bus to speak MIDI, essentially, and then was able to get my piano to play some notes. There's some noise when it runs, which I still haven't figured out. I don't know if I need shielded wire or something, but... That's pretty cool, man. And uh, for the people that don't know, how do you explain the differences between an Arduino and a Raspberry Pi and the two boards, what the difference in the use and et cetera? Yeah, it's a good question. They start to overlap some in certain areas over time. Um, But uh, historically, Arduino has been very C-focused, programmed in C, very geared toward embedded applications. So you could build some device that does something and you would build the Arduino into your project. And then it can be used for on-site installations of things and, and whatnot. And then Raspberry Pi is popular because you can program it in Python, of course, still has, I mean, you can still, of course, hook it up to to hardware just as easily, especially the early boards were much bigger. uh, So not really geared toward embedded applications, but the latest boards they have are pretty small as well. Raspberry Pi Zero is like a stick of gum. So in my experience, that's how they are similar and different. But what do you kind of see as Well, my go-to description, which I think it's definitely like an oversimplification and it's not perfect, but my go-to description is the Arduino is the muscle and the Raspberry Pi is the brain. So if you need to move stuff, 
that's the Arduino that will be controlling the movement. And if you need to think, like do some processing, if you need to, if you want to run some like lightweight version of machine learning models on the system, like use the brain, which is the Raspberry Pi. Obviously acknowledging that there is that overlap, but I don't know. What do you think of that description? I think that Six makes out a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it makes a lot of sense. And especially like Arduino, since it is often C-based. I don't know if other people are writing things other than C on Arduino these days, but since it is C-based, it tends to be very useful for real-time work, which would be controlling motors and, and actuators and things. And then using the Pi for any of the various machine learning libraries that are available would be a good application. So yeah, I like that way of thinking of it. Yeah, yeah, nice. And um, so then I'm interesting too, because I think pick your brain on think that for people that are not in web development, when you look at it from outside, it's sort of when you don't work in a field, it's easy to oversimplify it and maybe think that it's easier than what it is. And I always tend to think like if there's people that are thousands of people that are dedicated their life to this area like there's a lot to it it's yeah. complicated like there's different standards there's a lot of development a lot of work and definitely at least in the in the podcast and for the audience we we look at things from a data perspective and sort of from a data science perspective but i'm really keen for you to essentially take us into the world of, of web development there is a, a little bit of an overlap with some data products or data science products that have the, the visualization and get to get a web app which is things that I've done in the past in my jobs. But we're always like hacking our way through instead of doing something proper. So can you give us like a bit of an overview of web development, different components, whether it's back end, front end? How do you think about the space and the industry yourself? Uh, that's a really good question. I think what has happened in the past decade, especially, has been this kind of Evolvement, evolution of what web development can mean. Cause I think historically it was like somebody who can write CSS and HTML, right? And I think that as time has gone on, the complexity of building a website has grown exponentially and become much more about caching and progressive web applications and delivering the fastest time to first byte that you can. And so a lot of facets of web development have necessarily grown into the backend, what might traditionally have been called backend development. So in a lot of ways, web development has become much more of a full stack endeavor. And so I myself have done full stack programming for quite some time. The way a lot of our software is structured is that we have some client side code. We build a backend, if you will, that serves those web requests. But then that backend also talks to further backends to actually set and read data. So it becomes nuanced and layered. A traditional web application would be like PHP running on a server and some HTML rendered directly to the browser, right? So this role has grown and exploded, I think, in the past decade. And I think there is a lot to understand sort of data structure-wise, you know, which data structures lend themselves to particular problems more so than some development. Oh, yeah. no, that um. I wanted to ask you about all the different services that have come up and that continue to come up for web development in general, that essentially now everything's an API. You're just an API call away from some of the world's most amazing magic. Like, yeah. <laughs> and even like on the machine learning side, people can get 
analyze video with just through an API. It's like, as long as you get the video feed, you can send it to an API and it tells you back the expressions in people's face or whether there's different texts in the video, things like that. How has the rise of all the API services changed your life, I guess, as a web developer? And how do you keep up? Yeah, I think that is one of the biggest challenges, actually, with web development is keeping up because things change at such a mind-blowingly rapid pace. Even if you just talk about JavaScript frameworks or something, like even that little part of the ecosystem changes every month, every week. This kind of onset of everything as an API is good, I think, because like you said, it kind of unlocks power that you never had before or had to build yourself or had to buy access to. So things are a lot more accessible, but they are harder to take stock of, right? You don't know what's out there. You see seven solutions to the problem and you don't know which one is the right one. So it just becomes harder to kind of choose. And I think it's easy to suffer from analysis paralysis in a way. I mean, Amazon is a great example of a single company that is kind of spitting out tons of different uh, things as APIs, right? They, you mentioned like video and image analysis. They have like recognition, I think it's called, to do a lot of computer vision stuff. And there's lots of services that do like video transcoding and automated closed captioning and all sorts of stuff. So in a way, it lets you take the hard parts and just abstract them as things that have to happen. But it's, often, it's sometimes hard uh, to feel like you're doing anything anymore, too. It's easy to think like, well, I'm letting AWS do this and I'm letting this service do that. So what, you know, what am I doing? I'm just the glue. But I think it, really the value in web development these days is kind of knowing how to glue those things together in effective ways and efficient ways. And again, coming back to kind of leveraging caching and all that stuff to maintain performance at the client side, right? The user experience essentially is what's at stake there. And does that make it easier for people to be able to do more more things on their own? And what I'm thinking here is a one-man or one-person startup where I've seen, uh, particularly in the web development world, tell me whether you agree and whether this is an actual trend, but I started to notice that more people are able to be a one-person startup, bringing an idea to life by gluing together all these components, offering it as a product, still having time to do customer service and a bit of marketing on the side. And then they're sort of set up as a little company providing a service, obviously to a very specific niche and et cetera. But is that something that you're saying that it's more and more possible? What are your perspectives? I think I would agree with that. It is becoming more and more possible. And I have seen, like you said, a number of one-person shops popping up. I think what, what remains a challenge is that I don't think you can do too much customer service and outreach and things like that as one person, uh, especially as you get any kind of scale, right? It's a much harder job than a lot of people give it credit for, I think. Interpersonal communication. As tech people, we're often, you know, the stereotype is that we're not very good with interpersonal skills. I, you know, yeah. I don't think that's true either, but it is a very challenging thing. And so trying to take that part of it on as you scale, I think is difficult. And it's hard to do that as a service too, because you don't know people's product well enough to really help people or advocate for it mm -hmm. and things like that, unless you're working in it every day, right? So that part, yes. I think, is the more hard part to kind of abstract away. But I would agree on the whole. Yeah, that's actually a good point. 
Yeah. I also think it's interesting because now that so many things are accessible, I think we're seeing people recombine these things in novel ways. So there's a lot of times people are like, well, why is there this product for doing this? They're like, it's Uber for dogs. So that kind of thing is, I think, happening simply partly because there's these successful business models out there, right? Uh, But also... There is just that possibility of like, well, I can make a toothbrush for Kubernetes. I don't know, just random things, right? So uh, <laughs> seeing what's possible is, uh, just makes it more creative in some ways. That's right. Definitely unlocks your creativity. No, that's really interesting. I wanted to change tact. Tell me a little bit about your book. How did that start? Obviously, it's a long journey to write a book. Tell us a little bit about the book and then a little bit about how you got started in it. Sure. So the book is Practices of the Python Pro, and it is kind of an introduction to software design and software architecture for Python folks. Uh, The examples are in Python, but it's sort of applicable to most any language, I would say. And the reason I wrote it, I would say, is that I saw a number of friends of mine either transitioning into software or needing to make use of software more regularly for their own field. And they started coming to me asking questions about like resources for learning. Uh, Here's some code. Can you look at it? How am I doing? And I think that is that chasm that you have to cross is like, it's fine to write code however you like when you're you're the one using it right you do what works you're usually trying to just get something done fast you do what works for you but if you need to collaborate with others and need them to be able to use your code or update your code or maintain your code that is where it starts to become more useful and more important if they can read your code and understand your code well and that is where where software design becomes more important. So kind of seeing a number of my friends and people on the web um, interested in this, I figured I would know what I know about it, which take that at value you want. But I guess I got approached about it too because I had been writing some content online and Manning tends to reach out to folks that they think would be proactive about writing a book. So I I sort of knew it would be challenging, but it was even more challenging than that. It took a lot of time, of course, but it was a good process. And how does it compare to the content that you were producing before? Similar-ish space. I mean, I was writing about Python before. Some things I had written were more on the um, kind of on that web dev side, how to optimize database calls in Django and things like that, but similar audience perhaps. So it seems like a pretty good and natural transition. And yeah, I'm still taking a recess from writing at the, at the moment, but that is kind of my continued interest in writing for um, folks kind of nearer to the, the beginner intermediate side. Fantastic. No, that is really great thing to be sharing your knowledge and especially in this space. And I think that the system architecture side of programming, personal opinion, like it doesn't get enough attention and there are lots of pitfalls to avoid. There's a lot of experience to leverage. There's like good patterns. There's a lot of, a lot of information that would make so many people's lives so much easier. So I'm glad that you're packaging it into a book. What what ended up going into the book? Tell us a bit about that. Sure. I think that the main sort of track through the book is in the early part of the book, some philosophical or uh, theoretical groundwork to understand sort of why some of this stuff is helpful and, and how you sort of when it becomes necessary in the course of a, of a project, right? So it talks about what I mentioned already about maintainability and helping others understand code and how to break down code so that you can 
understand it in layers uh, through abstraction and then kind of moves into practical applications of those things. Uh, so through the latter chapters, there's kind of a, a small project where it, you know, it starts in one place and you slowly build the project by adding features, but also reach points where you sort of run into an issue because you haven't applied a particular concept, right? And then it takes you through applying those concepts. Nice. What's the project and, and what are the different stages? So it's a command line based bookmark application. So a lot of times browser bookmarking is kind of a pain to use and it's not queryable or very databased. You can search it sort of fuzzy text searching and stuff, but having something a little more sort of database record like I find helpful for storing yeah. some of that information. And I thought it might also be useful to implement different importers. So you could like import all of your stars from GitHub or something. So that's the project that takes you through creating the mechanisms for interacting with the database, creating the actual command line interface for the user and adding a GitHub star importer. And then it talks through kind of how to make sure that that application that you've built is flexible to future features that you haven't thought of yet, right? That is sort of the ultimate endpoint for a lot of software design is like, how can you write code that won't make it hard to write more code later? Yes. So that's really like the, if you have one point to take away from the book, it's like write code that is not getting in the way of writing more code later. Yes, that is a key lesson. Uh, very necessary, I would say. <laughs> and how long did it take you to write the book? And how are you testing the contents along the way? I think it ended up taking roughly a year, maybe a little bit longer than that. I think I had projected That's that it would part. take about a year and people, I think, tend to go over those estimates. So on the whole, I don't think I did too much worse than I had planned. But I think the way Manning does their books, I don't know how many other publishers do this. They have this early access program and you basically, as I, the author, am writing chapters, they release those on a regular basis to people who have bought the book in early access, which I think is great because it, it gives a chance for them to read it as it's happening. They can ask questions. They can say, you have a typo here various range of feedback you can incorporate sort of immediately as you're writing more chapters. So I think I found that quite valuable. And then, you know, they have various stages of editing as well. So throughout the course of the book, I'm working with our editor, sort of a development editor. And then each mm -hmm. chapter also gets reviewed by a technical editor. You also have copy editing and typesetting and all that. So there's various stages where things can be found, which is great. So I would prefer to do it that way again in the future. Uh, if I had the choice. Yes. I think there are some and publishers that kind of just tell you like, have at it and yeah. take a look when you're done. And Not great at all, I would say. I, I agree. And I was going to ask you something just it slipped out of my mind. Do you feel like you have another book in you? Maybe. I think, I think what it would take is another clear impetus, like where I saw many of my friends like asking for this kind of information. Something again was kind of hitting me on the head like that. I would be happy to write another one. But right now I can't say for sure if I have like this topic that's dying to be written about. Maybe it'll take another couple of years to develop either more experience or more passion about something. Uh, I think some books are very just filled with opinion 
Maybe yeah. if I grow some more opinions, I can write <laughs> about those. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, well, I'm sure you also need some time to recharge the batteries after that monster effort. Yeah, no, good man. And um, tell me, what type of things are occupying your mind at the moment? Like, what type of problems are you working on? Obviously, at work, outside of work, what type of things are you spending your time on, thinking about, working through, anything that you can share? I mean, like I said earlier, the design system that we're building is a big part of what we're doing. So in a little more detail, we're trying to basically build up what's essentially a product for other teams within our own organization. So the way React or something like that is a product for developers, we're, we're trying to do something similar, not obviously at the same scale, but the goal is to deliver something that is easy to use and easy to understand and develop sort of a rapport with everyone as a team that you can come to to ask questions and things like that, right? So in a lot of ways, we're, we're running like an open source project. It's not open source actually, but a lot of the same models apply. You have to be open to feedback and you have to be communicative and you have to think about the developer experience and not just what you want because they are often different things. And then, of course, there's all the usual web development things like accessibility and usability and just good visual design and things like that. So it's challenging, but in a really nice way. We were given sort of the time and trust to do a lot of upfront research about it, which I think has helped us land somewhere near where we hoped to go with it. I think it's the sort of thing where if you rushed it and just needed to get it out the door, you might deliver something pretty awful or subpar, and you'd have to do that a few times in a row and get close to what you wanted. So treating it more as a product and a living thing rather than just a, a thing you ship once has been helpful. Yeah, definitely. And what does the product do? Is it around the visual components? Can you tell us a bit more about the product aim itself? Yeah, so a design system is, again, kind of meant to build cohesion for the visual interface of, of a, a product. And so specifically for JSTOR, our goal is to make sure that every page that you might land on on JSTOR feels like JSTOR, has mm -hmm. familiar controls, all that kind of stuff. We may have some of that already on the visual side. So users may also already feel like JSTOR feels like JSTOR in some way, but it's possible on any given page that it may be produced slightly differently, right? It may look the same, but the code might be different in some way. So the goal is also to make the developer uh, process and experience much more efficient by kind of centralizing and standardizing the way that we do that stuff. Another goal is to kind of build it in a way that you may be able to expand that to new use cases. Um, so it may not just be JSTOR, but other things that we develop as well, right? Yeah, that's great. And how many teams or how many people would work on JSTOR and be using this product internally? We have on sort of the JSTOR.org front end, we have something like five product teams working on various aspects of it, authentication and authorization and search and viewing and using content are kind of some major areas of it. So I think about five, six teams would be our users. And then our team has three, recently three developers, design and product management and Scrum Master also we're an agile team. But our team is small, but we are also, again, trying to work toward basically everyone being on our team, right? Like we yeah. want everyone to contribute back and report bugs and help fix things and tell us what they really want so we can build it. Nice. And is yours the only team that's focused on servicing the other teams from a developer perspective? 
It's a good question. I would say sort of from the back end side, we have a team that feels like a counterpart to us in a lot of ways. They're doing similar things for our deployment infrastructure, for example. So getting yeah. teams ways to consistently and stand in a standardized way deploy applications for use on JSTOR is kind of one major thing they're working on. So there's that. And then there's historically kind of been a, a core team of people who provide our platform as a service generally. Like they manage all of how all of our AWS things work and all that. So a couple of different teams that are often serving other teams. Yeah, that makes sense. That's really good, Matt. And what is the next steps with the book sort of release and promotion at the moment. What has that been uh, looking like and, and what's yet to come? So it came out in January. And since then, I've been doing mostly like personal promotion, if you will. You know, I post about it and relevant things occasionally on Twitter or LinkedIn, things like that. You know, the usual suspects. But I saw a video yesterday, someone named Tech, his channel's named Tech with Tim. He does a bunch of great YouTube videos. Yeah, like I've, I've heard of him long before. I'm sure a lot of people have. So he like gave a shout out to the book, which was great. And then had a video about sort of software design in Python, which was, was really cool. I think channels like that are interesting ways to get a better taste very quickly of what some of these concepts look like in code. Because a lot yes. of it, you know, when you write about it, it's very theoretical. When you actually kind of touch code or watch code as someone's doing it, it becomes more real. So that was pretty cool. And then like the biggest way I think that's often overlooked for helping authors, I guess, get the word out is like giving Amazon reviews, for example. So like if you love an author's book or if you like it, okay, but you have feedback, like any, any kind of feedback on an Amazon review helps, you know, stir up interest or help people decide if the book is right for them, right? Very true. Oh, yeah. that's awesome, man. Well done. And um, tell me, where can people find you online and find the book online? So my Twitter handle is easy as Python. I recently also made kind of a uh, little landing page for the book. So I got the pythonpro.com, which has links to buy it or read it on various platforms. So I would say contact me there. Love it. That's awesome. Mate, thank you so much for your time. So impressed with your efforts, with uh, the book, with your work. Thank you so much for sharing your journey. We'll definitely be helping get your good work out there. Yeah, I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes if you like this episode it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast i hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you thanks again and see you next time